thank you guys and our choir and our praise team and all of you for taking part in worship this morning. And so uh, I pray God was honored. If you brought your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. And this morning I want to share a, a sermon, just Palm Sunday. This is Palm Sunday. It's also Passover Sunday. And, uh, but Palm Sunday, and we want to connect the two. We want to connect Passover and Palm Sunday and see how God works it all around and then Easter's next Sunday and see how God brought everything uh, into, into place. So today is Palm Sunday. It's a Sunday before Easter. Uh, it's a Sunday that we celebrate the royal entry of the King of Kings into Jerusalem. So with that said, look at Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 through 11. Speaking of the triumphant entry. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and it came to Bethage, at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied to a coat with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. <clears throat> All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and setting on a donkey a coat, the fowl of a donkey, or the foal of a donkey. And so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. And they brought the donkey and the coat, and they laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the, on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then the multitude who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, <clears throat> Hosanna to God of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And so the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's bow our heads for prayer. <coughs> Father, I thank you for an opportunity to come and worship today. And we've worshipped you. And Father, you spoke to us and you drew out from inside of us praise and thanksgiving to you for who you are, God. And the love that you've shown to not only to us but to the entire world by sending your Son into the world to die on the cross, shed his blood, that we could have forgiveness of our sins. And we're humbled by that thought this morning. Teach us, we pray, about this important day that leads up to a more important day next week, next Sunday, Easter Sunday. And help us, we pray, as you teach us this morning to apply this message to our hearts. Make the decisions public that you want us to make. And we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Palm Sunday, all of this was happening. All of this was happening in the springtime of the year. Somewhat like 
our time we're experiencing right now with our weather and with everything budding and the grass turning green and dogwoods turning white and pink. The winter rains were all over and the entire country just bursted forth with just beautiful colors of spring. This, this is Passover time of the year. This is Easter time of the year. Passover was set uh, in the full of the moon. Because when the slaves were taken out of Egypt, they left at night. And to make their journey to the promised land, God provided a full moon where they could walk at night and where they could march at night. And so the Passover was set in the light of the moon. And so Easter is set at the time of Passover. The Passover is set the first Sunday after the full moon, after the full moon, after the veronal equinox. And so this is Passover. So if you're taking notes, the time of Passover, point number one, very short point. Point number two, two let's look at the multitudes just for a moment. During this time of the year, you had multitude after multitude of people beginning to converge on Jerusalem to celebrate this event known as the Passover. Josephus, uh, the first century historian, born in A.D. 37, lived to 100 A.D. Uh, Josephus, he wrote of this period of time, and he said Jerusalem at the Passover season uh, had at least or as many as too many pilgrims present. So over two, at least two million, maybe more than two million, would come into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Don't you get this picture in your mind? So you have Jesus fixing to ride through the city, being announced as the king of kings. And then you have all these people from around gathering from the Passover. Josephus says over too many pilgrims would be at Jerusalem. The whole earth around this city of Jerusalem was just a solid gathering of people, a solid gathering of tents. You had black tents, you had white tents, you had all different colors of tents, and they would color the, the landscape of Jerusalem. And then you had others coming. You had them coming from the east. You had them coming from Jericho, and you had them coming from the Jordan side, and then you had them coming from the Mount Olive side, and then you had them coming from the Bethany side. And now all of these were gathering for the Passover, coming not, not only, but not only for the Passover, not only just for Easter, but they were also coming because of Lazarus, because of Lazarus. In John chapter 12, listen to this, verse 9 says this, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, speaking of Jesus, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So Jesus was drawing the crowd in one sense of the word. The Passover was drawing the crowd in another sense of the word. But Lazarus was drawing the crowd, a crowd in another sense of the word. You remember the story of Lazarus. You remember that miracle where Martha and Mary had a brother. His name was Lazarus. He was Jesus' first cousin. And he was sick unto death. And they sent word to Jesus to come to to, to Lazarus, he was sick, he was dying. And Jesus kindly put them off. And you know what happened? Lazarus died. Jesus showed up four days later. And de uh, 
uh, you might say, uh, uh, these four days later, he, he began to decompose, and, and Jesus went to the cemetery, and, and he said, Lazarus, come forth from the grave, and Lazarus came forth from the grave. So he raised him from the grave. So the point is thousands came to this little town of Bethany not only to see the prophet Jesus of Galilee, but also to look upon Lazarus himself. And so if you would, look at verse 9, Matthew 21. We're going back and forth. Matthew 21, verse 9. Then the multitude who went before those who followed cried out, and this is what they said, Hosanna to, son, to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And he had come into Jerusalem, and all the city was moved, saying, notice what they said, who is this? Who is this? In verse 11, verse 11, this is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So you have the Passover, and then you have the multitude. Now, I want you to see something I never had noticed before, never had thought of it this way, but when you put it all together, you see God, God showing us things he's never shown before. The third point is the first public presentation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The first public presentation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the Lord is about to do two things that he'd never done before. The first thing... He never did use an animal before. He, everywhere Jesus went, he walked. You never find Jesus riding on anything, being, being carried by animal anywhere that he went until you get to Matthew 21, 6 through 9. So Jesus is about to do something he's never done before. Throughout his entire ministry up to this point, he walked. He always walked. The second thing that Jesus had never done before, Jesus never sought publicity he never sought publicity but now there's a turnabout in the ministry of Jesus there's a turnabout in the life of Jesus uh, Isaiah chapter 42 you're talking about someone that's someone that's uh, that's quiet someone that really never caused them uh, never wanted any publicity or any type of that Isaiah 42 verse 3 says he will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flack he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. Not going to cause anything to draw attention to himself. And this was his ministry. This is how he lived his entire life up until now. He was quiet. He was humble. He was unadvertised. He was, he was unpublicized. It was just him and a very few followers, close followers of his. And so while he, was, while he was living during that time, prior to Matthew 21, his whole life was just quiet and unadvertised. You remember when John the Baptist was baptizing in the River Jordan and Jesus went to him and asked him to baptize him? And John the Baptist baptized Jesus? And if you remember, there's a voice came from heaven, but the Holy Spirit came down, descended from heaven to empower Jesus for ministry and lit upon him in the form of a dove. No one saw that but God the Father, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and John the Baptist. 
No one else around. Very private. It's very private time. Remember when the devil tempted Jesus on the mountain and he carried him up to Mount, uh, the Mount of Temptation and he asked him to throw himself off of the, of the pinnacle of the temple and then uh, angels would come and they would catch him before his feet could touch the ground and all the people could see that magnificent miracle, but Jesus refused to do that. He didn't want to draw attention to himself, and he says, hey, it's, it's not the Bible. The Word says, don't tempt the Lord your God. And so he refused to do that. In all of his miracles of healing, he would always add the words, tell no man, tell no man. Didn't want the publicity, didn't want to advertise. When the leper was cleansed in Matthew 8, he says, don't tell anyone of this. Tell no man. When the blind was made to see in Matthew 9, he says, hey, tell no one. Tell no man. And when he went to Jairus' house, remember that? And Jairus' little daughter had died or was dying and she had died and, and the house was filled with people and Jesus goes in and what did he do? He asked everybody to leave. He asked the family to leave and he carried Peter and James and John inside the bedchamber and there he raised the little girl to life. Not a public spectacle, but just those three, James, Peter, James, and John, and then Jesus. On the Mount of Transfiguration, didn't have a big crowd there, at Peter, James, and John. There when he went to the garden to pray before he was crucified, goes to the garden, and he left Peter, James, and John in one spot, and the Bible says that he went a little further. He went by himself. Didn't take a big group with him. Didn't take a, uh, a, a lot of people, a lot of security. He, he just went by himself, and there he prayed. And now we see him as he's presented publicly to multitudes of people, Jesus Christ as the King of Israel. My goodness, what a turn in his life from living a private, simple, non-publicized life to all of a sudden... Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people. After waiting for years and centuries and millenniums, the promised king, the Messiah, has arrived. And what was the natural reaction to those people? Look at Matthew 21, verse 9. And then the multitude. Look at verse 8. A very great multitude. We've talked about the multitudes. They spread their clothes on the road. Imagine this. They cut down branches from the trees, palm branches. They spread them on the roads. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The word Hosanna there means salvation. It means salvation. And so you can see Jesus all of a sudden being presented publicly to multitudes as the Messiah, as the King of Kings. And so the first presentation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was on Palm Sunday as he crawled aboard the little donkey to make himself known to the people as the King of the Jews. Now I want to show you something else. The second, the second public presentation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When was that? Well, it was at his death. It was at his death. You know, this is, this is real interesting. First of all, he was publicly set apart on the 10th day of Nisan. 
Now listen real close. This is interesting. He was publicly set apart to make that triumphal entry on the 10th day of Nisan. Augustine said this, and I quote, This royal entry into Jerusalem is far more like the, pro the procession of a victim to the sacrificial altar than the procession of a king to his throne. So the 10th day of Nisan, a day that was real sacred to all the Jews, they knew what that day was all about because it was on this day which the lamb was chosen and set aside that was to be offered for the sins and salvation for the families of God's chosen people. The same day Jesus was inaugurated to ride to Jerusalem was the same day that the sacrificial animal was chosen to be offered for the sins of God's people. The point is, on the same day that the Jewish people chose a sacrifice to offer for their sins, it was on this same day, the 10th of Nisan, that our Lord was publicly set aside for a, for a sacrifice, for a covering, for an atonement, for the washing away of our sins. The very same day. And when he was crucified, when he died, it was so public, so public. Remember the multitude. So public that three Inscriptions had to be made in three different languages at the cross. A sign in Hebrew, a sign in Greek, a sign in Latin that said Jesus, what? The King of the Jews. The world of religion would know it, three signs. The culture of the world would know it by three signs. The, the, the world of government would know it, three signs. And so outside the city of Jerusalem, on a public highway, people going here, going there, very busy time, multitudes saw a sign, three languages, Jesus, the King of the Jews. And so in the middle of thousands and thousands and thousands of people, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would be lifted up from earth, between earth and heaven, as a public spectacle for all the known world at that time to see. And so the question is, was this public exaltation, was it really necessary? Got thinking about that. Was all that really necessary? Was it necessary for all of that Publicity and advertisement. I mean, after all, he could have died like, he could have died while in heaven. God could have carried him some solitary place in heaven and he could die, took his blood, and it could have been used for the remission of our sins. Could have done that, but he didn't. Or he could have died like Moses by himself, falling in death sleep on some, some side of a mountain as Moses did, where they never found his grave in Deuteronomy 34. Or he could have been offered up like Abraham offered Isaac on a mountain far away from everything, Genesis chapter 22. And his blood could have still washed away our sins. But those ways were not God's 
sovereign ways. Those ways were not God's elective ways. Those ways was not God's purpose. God said this, When my son is offered as a sacrifice for the sins of the earth, it shall be public, and the entire earth shall, be, shall fix its gaze upon the sacrifice of my only begotten son. And so John chapter 19, 19 through 20 speaks of those three languages, Hebrew and Greek and Latin, that the world will know that Jesus Christ is the King of the Jews. Remember this, the public acknowledgement of the blood of Christ, the public acknowledgement of the blood of Christ, the public acknowledgement, even here today, of the blood of Christ has always been the sovereign will for centuries and centuries and centuries. Before the cross, Jesus said, back in Exodus, and we've been singing about it, and Kyle and Terry shared just a few minutes ago about, about that night of the Passover. For centuries back, before the cross, Jesus said in Exodus 12, and the blood shall be displayed openly, Wow, publicly, unshameable, with a great commitment. Exodus chapter 12, verses 5 through 7, 22 through 23. Therefore, we have a slide of this, I think. Therefore, on the, side, on the front of the house, the front of the house, the Lord gave command to take the blood of the Passover lamb and sprinkle it on the front of the house front of the house, on the lentil, on the, on the lentil and, and on each side of the door. It, it formed the shape of a cross. That was God's commandment. On the lentil, above the door, on either side, in the form of a cross, Exodus chapter 12. And perhaps some Hebrew would say something like this, well, uh, I'm going to sprinkle it on the back side, not the front side. You always has have someone like or he might have said, I'm going I'm to sprinkle it inside the closet. I'm going to sprinkle it in the back. I'm going to hide the blood. But see, the point is the blood of atonement, the blood of forgiveness, the blood of redemption. God says the blood shall be on the front, presented openly, presented publicly, where the whole world can see. Exodus 12, 5 through 23. And so the point is, this has been God's way of salvation for his people for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Openly, publicly, standing by the cross. So this, no, this morning, I confess to you that I'm a child of God. I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus. I've trusted in the blood of Jesus Christ for my atonement, for my forgiveness of sin, for washing away and forgiving me of my sin. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In Him, Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. I believe in His blood. I believe in His blood. So with conviction and without shame and with commitment unto death, I stand by the cross and stand behind a cross pulpit and I stand by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the only hope that I have for my forgiveness of sin is the shed blood of Jesus. And so let me ask you this today. Let me ask you this. Have you, have you ever, 
Have you been washed in the blood, so to speak? Have you trusted Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? Are you willing publicly, day in, day out, to stand by the cross, not just on Sunday, but day in and day out, stand by the blood of Jesus? Have you ever wondered why Christians are persecuted? You know, why did Rome free Everyone but the Christian. Why did why did Rome why did the Romans feed Christians to the lions? Why did the Romans burn Christians at the stake? Why did the Romans confiscate the property of Christians? Why did Rome persecute the disciples, the followers of Jesus? You know, Rome never interfered with the religion of its provinces. When, someone was, when a province was defeated, they maintained their religion. They, they could worship as they pleased. You had people that worshipped Juno and Jove and, and Aphrodite and Venus and Neptune. It was okay with Rome for them to worship all of those other gods. And so Rome built what was known as the Pantheon. And the Pantheon was built to house great statues of all different types of gods. There's a picture of it. And they had, a little, they had a little niches engraved where inside there where you could set a statue of the god that you worship, the god that you adored. Built by King Agrippa in 44 B.C. And, and from any province, any province that that uh, was taken over by Rome, they could bring their deity to the pantheon to worship. They could bring them. And the emperor's, emperor's image of Rome was also the last image that was in the pantheon. When you walked out, you would pass the, the image of the emperor. That was quite interesting. When you passed the image of the emperor, if you were going to be put to death as a Christian, if you were going to be put to death by a Christian, you'd pass by the Roman emperor's image statue or, or front, frontal facial statue, and they had, a, they had a, a sensor there, and it was a fire, a continual fire, and you'd take a pinch, just a pinch, just a little pinch between two fingers, and throw over into that burning fire the Roman emperor. And as you would throw that over, you would say, Curas, Caesar. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And so every, every martyr that went through the Pantheon to be put to death had an opportunity to take a pinch of incense and throw over and into that burning censer as a sacrifice and to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. But the Christian wouldn't do that. The Christian wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do it. All that was required to save the Christian from death, from martyrdom, was to take a pinch of the incense and put it on the sacrifice fire, burn it in front of that image of the emperor, and they could be set free. But they would not do that. All they had to say is, Caesar is Lord. You didn't have to touch it. You didn't have to bother with it in any way. And so for 300 years, Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians were put to death because they would not say, Caesar is Lord. 
And that is the elective purpose of God for his people today. God expects, if you're here today and you're a believer, God expects every believer, even us, if it costs us our lives to follow him openly and publicly, even unto death, are you willing to do that? Or would you take a pinch of, of incense and throw to a false god and say, this god is the Lord. You see, God, God really made this command, if you think about it. He, he really made this command to follow him openly, and to stand by the cross and stand by the blood, he really made that kind of to be intricately part of our very salvation. For he said this in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth... Confession is made to salvation. Confessing who your Lord is. Confessing that Jesus Christ is my Lord. Mark 8, 38. Whosoever shall be ashamed of me in this evil generation of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. Kindly integral in our salvation to confess Christ and be willing to stand by the cross and to stand by the blood. Today, I, I come and I stand publicly and I stand by the cross and, and I say, I'm a Christian. So you have the Passover, you have the multitude, you have the public presentation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, first on Palm Sunday as he rode the donkey. Secondly, you have this public presentation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, at his crucifixion. And I don't have time to mention the well, I will mention the third, and I'll go over it some other time. The last public presentation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is found in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. Listen to this. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. Behold, he's coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those that pierced him and all tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Jesus said, I'm Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. My goodness, that is the last. Only three public presentations of Jesus Christ. On Sunday, the crucifixion, and when he comes again. Now let me ask you this. Have you confessed Jesus Christ as Lord of your life? It's not about, you know, believing in Jesus. It's trusting Jesus for your salvation. Nothing else. But then part of that believing in Jesus is surrendering to him to be the Lord of your life. That word Lord is kuros one that has all power and authority and control. And you're saying, God, you're, you're, you're Lord. You're, you're Lord Jesus. You, you have all power and authority and control of my life. See, you don't make Jesus your Lord. He's already been made Lord. 
according to Philippians chapter 2, you've been given a name above every name, that name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. God's given him that name. You don't make him your Lord. What you do is surrender to his lordship. That he has all power and authority and control over your life. If you, have a, if you really have a hard decision in being in church on Sunday or being in type of spiritual discipleship or, or following God's word in any way and you really have to think about that and even go as far to say you got to pray about it, you've never understood the lordship of Jesus Christ. You, you accept his lordship over your life. I pray if you haven't done that, that you'd come today and be saved and confess him as Lord and Savior of your life. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father, I thank you for an opportunity we have to come and worship you and thank you for your message today. Thank you for the songs that led up to it, Lord, that just kind of fertilized our heart to where your word could grow as it was shared. Forgive me, Father, I pray, if I overstep my boundary. But, Father, as best as I, I knew how I shared your word about Palm Sunday and about the presentations of Jesus, we looked for him one day to call us up and then one day to come back, Father, to reign as glorious king over all the earth in that millennial reign. That's prophesied throughout your word. Be with each person here. And I pray for those who have never trusted you. That they would come and receive you into their life today. Others who need to make decisions in regards to being a part of the body of Christ. And serving you. Lord we, got a, we have a big responsibility of reaching the world. Being on co-mission with you. Help us to get plugged in in that. And Father this is a glorious day today on Palm Sunday. As the, as the Jews, Messiah was made known to them. And he's been made known to us. Thank you, Lord, for loving us and saving us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have an invitation. Listen while they sing. Just bow your head and pray and meditate.